You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Happy New Year. I can't complain. Happy New Year to you. You know, are this you... is going to be a, a pretty uh, tumultuous year. We've got, you know, uh, the U.S. elections. We've got two billion people coming up in democracy elections. We've got Ukraine, Gaza, the world. It's not it's not looking altogether reassuring, if you ask me. Then again, and this is one thing we will talk about, I am possibly a more anxious and pessimistic person than you are. <laughs> I think that's probably generally true, although the diversity of you know cognitive diversity is, as you know and advocate, is a good thing relative to the adaptation of of humanity, societies, groups, communities. So uh, yes, I think I am generally speaking more optimistic, although I, I think all rational people coming into this year are like, ooh, this is going to be a rough one. Things aren't going to get less weird, possibly. Yeah. So so let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcaster. You're Reed Hoffman. Uh, I could spend quite a bit of time introducing you. Let me start with more recent stuff. Uh, you're author of the book Impromptu about AI. Uh, you are co-founder of Inflection AI which makes a bot called Pi, which we'll talk about, because it's very relevant to your conception of how AI can be a good thing. Um, you were a co-founder of OpenAI, which everyone has heard of by now. Well, not co-founder, but I was part of the, the team. The, I think okay. the co-founders are a smaller group, but yes. Okay, oh, so that's actually a technical term. I mean, you were one of the yes. original people who put money in, weren't you? Yes, that's correct. Okay. That's... And helped the founding team and the founders do it. But it just... In in the valley, when you say co-founder, it's like you were one of the people who jumped in oh. full time and were rowing the boat along with the others. And people argue over it like credits on a movie or something. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so anyway, and you were on the OpenAI board, yep. uh, although you left roughly when you found an inflection, which means that sadly you missed the Altman drama over Thanksgiving. I'm sure you were more plugged into it than I was. Uh, unfortunately, I doubt you're willing to tell us much about what you learned by virtue of being plugged in. By the way, I'm willing to talk about that some. And um, I actually left in March of last year. Um, mm -hmm. So it was about a year after inflection. It wasn't really inflection as the catalyst. Okay. So, uh, and you are still on Microsoft's board. Yes. Which you got on by virtue of selling LinkedIn, which you founded to Microsoft. Yep. Although um, technically we closed the whole deal, then they approached me about being on the board. I see. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't at all part of the 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 deal. And actually, uh, Satya had to persuade me uh, to join the board, since I generally speaking try to avoid public boards. Um, and you know, as is frequently the case, Satya was right uh, that it was a good thing for the world and Microsoft and everything else for me to join. But I try to avoid public boards if I can. Okay, I will not ask you to join any. I have one you could join if you want, but <laughs> but uh, but I'll avoid that. Um, so uh, you know, we've uh, we talked a few months ago, not on the podcast, but at a kind of conference, and and as we've already alluded to, it became uh, apparent that I'm a little more anxious about uh, AI than you are. Uh, although uh, you you, you uh, acknowledge uh, some things to worry about, and I don't think I'm blind to uh, the many possible upsides of AI. Uh, and I certainly wanted want to discuss that uh, with you uh, and, and contrast our views, and that will inevitably bring in discussion of your book, Impromptu, which is a pretty optimistic take. Uh, 
um, and uh, also also Pi. Um, uh, let me uh, let me ask you wh what form of pessimism annoys you the most? Because it may not be the kind I have. Who knows? <laughs> um, well, I mean, you already obviated a little bit from the kind you have from the ones that mostly do, which is the form of there's probably two forms of pessimism that that irritate me the most. The one is where it's completely only articulating pessimism and doesn't realize that there is possibility like possibilities to navigate to. So they think the most important part of the dialogue is to only talk about the risks and critiques versus the what we could do and how do we navigate risks in order to get there. Mm -hmm. And then the second is um, more things that are kind of what I would say is, you know, kind of things that are pretty easy to fix in dynamic process. Mm -hmm. And it's good to raise the concerns about the things you can fix in dynamic process. Let's take a classic one, which is it hallucinates. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, yes, you know, early technology has errors and flaws. And by the way, we're fixing that month by month. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. we're going to fix it to zero. But then again, you get to the benchmarks of well, what's the what what allow level of hallucination is okay. You say we live with that all the time. Human beings hallucinate, make errors. Search engines hallucinate, make errors. It's just what is the right benchmark that's not zero is the other kind of thing that is um, frequently frustrating to me in conversations yeah. with people articulating criticism here. Yeah, I I, I I I thought about that myself. That that its hallucination rate is probably lower than that of the average person. Uh, you know, there are really more parallels, I think, than people realize between the largest language model and a person in general. It's like you could say, well, it's not really it's not really thinking. It's just kind of, you know, it's gathered all this data about what's been said. And then it just says the kind of thing that it thinks somebody would say if asked that question. Well, you know, human beings, if they're in a group, people care about what the group thinks of them. And often what they're doing is saying the kind of thing that somebody in that group or maybe uh, high status people in that group or something might say without even realizing it. You know, I mean, we are more parroters of conventional wisdom than we realize. And we spend a lot less time actually verifying facts that we utter uh, than we'd like to think. Yeah, so, no, exactly. Yeah. So and how do you feel about the kind of Yudkowskyite doomers, the the, the sci-fi oh. doom scenarios? Um, well, generally speaking, I think it's Bozoville. Um, and um, it isn't that there's zero percent chance. That's not the same thing. But I tend to think that they make a lot of relatively straightforward conceptual mistakes in what sounds like a coherent and intelligent argument. Um, and and the, mo the most macro thing I think about all this is that the, um, that if you kind of say, well, where should we worry about uh, AI's negative impacts on humanity, we should focus on the Terminator robots that are coming. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, really it's actually AI in the hands of malintentioned human beings that is much more proximal and just as dangerous. So it's like the bad humans are more likely to get you with the technology before the technology gets you. And by misfocusing the 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 priority one attention, it's actually quite damaging. Now, that being said, look, you know, accidentally or deliberately creating, you know, kind of a super dangerous autonomous AI 
that's self-replicating and a bunch of other things, of course, is above 0% chance. And so you have to go, well, then why would you create it all? And we can go into that, that kind of, or why would you create AI at all? We can go into that, that discourse, by the way, just like creating nuclear weapons is a great way to add an existential risk thing to the column. And why do you end up creating them? And what do you end up doing with them? Um, and I think AI is much more, much more positive uh, than nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so it's it's kind of a, I think you have to get into the kind of reasonable questions and analysis and frame of it. And, you know, what people do is say, well, computers exponentiating, uh, we'll correlate that with IQ. There's a question there. Then you have super IQ, and then the super IQ reorders the world according to what it wants. And even if it's not malicious to human beings, for us is roughly what the kind of classic doomer uh, tends to tends to do. And that tends to get, and see, that's a coherent argument, and you haven't answered my argument, and therefore I'm going to stay here and yell about this danger. And you're like, okay, that's a little bit like, by the way, if I were to describe you as cars, as two-ton death machines that some drunk people are going to drive, and uh, you're going to run over children sometimes, and you know a bunch of other stuff, it's like, oh, let's not do a car. And you're like, well, okay, but like, by the way, a huge amount of modern humanity in terms of work, in terms of going to school, in terms of logistics and supply chain and all the rest of the stuff requires cars. And so mm -hmm. the question is, is how do you navigate the cars in a good way? And 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 that's 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 a little bit of my, you know, so it's it, it's why the doomer, like the narrow focus on the doomerism um, is, I think, challenging. Actually, let me give you another way of putting it, because I would really love you to challenge me if you disagree with me about what Happy I'm to. about to say. I know, I know. It's one of the reasons I'm, you know, I've, I've been looking forward to this uh, podcast for quite a long, some time. Um, uh, kind of May last year, they came out with a 22-word statement saying AI should be considered an existential risk along with climate change, pandemic, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And a whole bunch of my friends who I respect deeply, um, Saf Suleiman, Sam Altman, James Manika, a bunch of other people all signed this 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 uh, 22 word statement and asked me to. And the reason I didn't, um, and I was on vacation in Japan at the time, otherwise I would have tried to argue for them not to do it. But I, you know, once I came back and it was done, I was like, all right, well, let me tell you why I didn't do it. Which is, I think the right way to think about existential risks for humanity is a portfolio of risks. And when you're making changes, is how do you change the portfolio? And climate change is just potentially bad. Nuclear war, just potentially bad. Asteroid hitting the planet, just potentially bad. Pandemic, just potentially bad. AI is the only one that also does a bunch of positive things. Like, for example, ultimately, it's the only way I can really see to solve pandemics. It's definitely something that would be pretty helpful on asteroids. I can see ways it'll be very helpful on climate. Nuclear war, I don't think... It's it's helpful on unless someone does something idiotic like Dr. Strangelove and hooks it up to the nuclear defense squared, which is please don't do that. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but, you know, like and that's why the portfolio has a whole bunch of positive attributes, even an existential risk. And that's part of the you know broadening the lens and not just taking this thing. It was like, what is the lens of existential risks and what does AI do to the portfolio of them? Yeah. The um, so yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is uh, there aren't many truly existential risks. Well, actually, the first uh, first there's a little footnote, which is that nuclear weapons have arguably had 
the upside of uh, reducing the incidence of uh, war between great powers because they've had a deterrent effect. 100%. So that that's, you know, on balance, would I sleep better in a world without nuclear weapons? Probably. But there there is uh, that. Um, existential risk is almost always an overstatement, I, I find. And, and even nuclear, even all-out nuclear war probably wouldn't quite wipe out the species. Um, certainly climate change by itself uh, wouldn't. And the only version of AI, you know, uh, doom I can imagine doing it is the Yudkowsky version where the AI, you know, actually picks us up and, and stuffs us into the pods in the matrix or something, you know, like, so in other words, the kinds of things I'm concerned about are not existential per se. I, I but I, I certainly take your point that, um, first of all, that, that AI, it has tons of potential upside. I get very excited about it and thinking about how to integrate it into my life in thinking about the good I can do, uh, it can do. Um, and, uh, you know, and one reason, aside from my temperamental negativity <laughs> that I uh, emphasize the downside is I think in a way, in a certain sense, the downside is, is just not going to get enough of the right kind of attention. I mean, you know, with, with any whole new generation of products, there's going to be a lot of money behind generating positive publicity for them, right? That That's going to happen. Um, and as a rule, historically, there have been a lot of downsides that have been neglected. Now, this time around, uh, I know you would point out if I didn't, uh, there is actually a lot of anxiety. And uh, I, I think it's in a certain that... I'm kind of happy it's there because I, wa I want us to have a big conversation about AI. At the same time, it is kind of, in a certain sense, misplaced, I think, um, it, at least if you look at how it was generated. I, I think one of the main reasons there's so much anxiety, and polls really show that people are more anxious about AI than they were a couple of years ago, um, I think it has to do with how many kind of thought leaders in AI, like uh, Sam Altman, have said they're very worried about it. And uh, the the to me, the irony is that is and the surprise to me in a way is how many of them are to some extent focused on the version of it that we've talked about that neither you nor I that really thinks is the main thing to worry about right now, which is the kind of sci-fi scenarios. I only realized recently how many people in AI grew up reading sci-fi and uh, you know, superhero comic books and stuff. And uh, I, I don't mean they're, you know, they, they don't have any intellectual foundation for their concerns. And I don't completely rule out the Yudkowsky scenario. I, I'm agnostic. Uh, but I do think of all the, of the people you mentioned who you know who signed that letter, the one who's most on my wavelength is your, your co-founder at Inflection, Mustafa uh, Suleiman, who is also the, was the, uh, a co-founder of DeepMind. Uh, which kind of evolved initially an independent company kind of evolved into being Google's AI operation after being acquired by Google. He doesn't emphasize the sci-fi superintelligence scenarios. He's more worried about more kind of mundane risks. Now, the last thing I'd say, I've talked longer than I should since nominally I'm the host and the interrogator. Uh, but but let me just say it's, one more. It's a discussion. It's a discussion. It's, thank you. Not everyone feels that way about, uh, about this, but I'm glad you do. Um, I guess the last thing I'd say, if you talk about the other, if you look at the other big famous letter, the pause letter, which, which I think was Bozoville. 
Okay. Uh, I, I, okay, see, I don't, although I, I would rationalize, well, first of all, pauses are very difficult to attain in the real world. It, it's, it's, on the other hand, if they're asking, they were asking for a pause in training, uh, the frontier model AIs, and there was only, there was a very small number of institutions that had the capacity to train frontier model AI. So they were really as, only asking uh, for buy-in from, I don't know, OpenAI, Google, maybe Baidu. I, I don't know who it was, but it, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a, cra a crazily impossible thing. I would say that I think uh, the most famous names on that, you know, Elon Musk, they're into the sci-fi thing. And that's where we differ. The reason I would like to see a pause if such a thing were possible, and of course, it wouldn't be a pause. I mean, it'd be a pause in training the next generation, but but ChatGPT4 has, has been such a kind of revelation that it's going to take years for the implications of that to play out, right? Um, so um, anyway, my, my, my big concern in a way can be boiled down to, the, down to the speed of change. I think there are a lot of potentially unsettling, destabilizing aspects of AI, notwithstanding all the good stuff. Uh, and if we have more time to process what's happening, we'll do a better job of adapting. And I think collectively, if you look at all the possible downsides and the various forms of destabilization, it could get, you know, again, not literally existential, but it could be the kind of thing that tips the world into chaos if we don't uh, kind of channel it wisely. Well, first, let me say something about the pause stuff and the reason why I think it's Bozovo, which is, you know, theory of human nature. You make a clarion call to human beings in general and you say, please slow down, pause on this stuff. You can say, okay, let's be somewhat simplistic here. The people who care about humanity go, oh, I'll listen to you and I'll start, I'll stop doing it. The people who don't really care go, okay, I'm going to ignore you and I'm going to keep going and I'm going to go fast. Already, you have an adverse selection effect because the theory that simply everyone's going to pause is Bozoville. The second thing is... I would say, say again, though, that at that point, a training pause in frontier models, you just need a small number of institutions. Now, I grant you that getting them to do that may be like herding cats, notwithstanding the small number, but, but it's not asking for uh, everyone, all of humankind to assent to this. Right. Yes. Although, by the way, there's a whole bunch of different efforts that are going towards it. So if you ask the people who are in the lead doing it, what you're essentially doing is is shortening that lead sure. for the people who are still in the two by two matrix. But let, let's go to your point, which is, OK, there's a limited number of institutions that are in the lead. So what did the architects of this letter do? Rather than going to those inst those institutions and saying, look, I know you care about humanity too. Let's let's do this in some kind of collaborative way. What they did is they surprised all those institutions by grandstanding and say, we care about humanity, unlike those people. Right. And so we're going to do this. Later. And that's a really good way to get people to listen to you, to, to grandstand otherwise and say, I'm the hero. You're the villain. Fuck you. And so, you know, what I told some of the authors of that letter is, what do you think the most natural response of those institutions, which you deliberately did not include, you deliberately did not talk to, you deliberately did not co coordinate with, you just did this kind of press release to, to try to try to do it. What do you think the natural human response to that is? Which is, piss off, we're not going to listen to you anymore. <laughs> right. So remind and, me, so Sam Altman didn't sign that no. and Sundar Pichai didn't because nope. I, I believe both of them did sign the second letter. Including, yes, the 22-word yeah. statement, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
So yeah, no, that, I, I I think some uh, some discussion might not have been a, a bad idea. I mean, it's still a tough, you know, getting any any uh, corporation to to rain to to reduce a competitive advantage it's going to have uh, is is tough in the in the modern world. But I and see, I think that is the biggest the biggest challenge in a way to governing this thing wisely is the sheer arms race dynamic, first of all, among corporations and other institutions, but also the, the kind of distinctive kind of arms race you get when you've got a kind of a Cold War going, and we have a little bit of one going uh, with China. I think that poses distinctive problems. And, and you know, one thing a lot of these uh, AI leaders said, I was surprised and heartened by, was right at, right off the bat, they said, ultimately, you need some kind of international governance. I mean, it could be normative, conceivably. It could be actually regulatory. But just logically speaking, it's the kind of problem that cannot be entirely dealt with through national policy alone. I, I was glad to see that. And of course, if, if that's the case, then the Cold War, uh, you know, the current situation with China is a real challenge. I agree with you exactly about your challenges. My theory of human nature is, you know, people uh, divide into groups and we compete with each other and we have different perspectives in the world and different values and listening. It's one of the reasons why I think pause to everybody is not really what works. You know, it's it's a, it's a motion across the network. Some of those are organizations competing. Some of those are countries competing. Some of those are societies, you know, or kind of cultures competing. Um, and so, so I think that, um, but, you know, to give you an alternative to this kind of, grandstanding, look at me, I'm the hero, I'm calling, causing for a pause. You know, what I and others have been doing for years has been saying, well, we need to navigate this safely rather than, than trying to say, slow down and lose the lead for the entities. Let's be making sure that we're sharing best intelligence about how to navigate this safely. Mm -hmm. What should be the safety test harnesses? What are the things we should look for in terms of if this was being developed or this was emerging, this would pose risks either in the hands of bad actors, humans, or in the hands of, you know, uh, uh, you know, AIs that are out of control in some way and, and to navigate all of that and to bring people together to talk about it. And that's part of the reason why the safety institutes, UK, US, UK, Japan are being spun up because they come out of this. That's part of the things that, you know, when got to, when, when the Biden White House asked for initially, you know, kind of uh, voluntary commitments, you know, you had things ready to hand like red teaming and and watermarking and other kinds of things that were concrete actions in order to do. And 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 that's that's essentially my challenge to most of the critics, which is to say the really key thing is not to be thinking you're virtuous by standing on a soapbox yelling slow down. The real key thing is to do the work. To figure like how do we navigate? What are the things we do in order to because there is going to be this competitive race, Cold War, competition, you know, economic competition, all the rest, to say within that competing human constraint, how do we navigate this to best possible outcomes and, and navigate against the worst possible outcomes? Mm -hmm. And contributing there, that's where the hard work is. That's the thing I've been doing. That's the thing a number of other people have been doing. That's the right thing to be. To be focused on, and and this is a little bit of my um, when you were asking me which critics I found irritating, it's the ones who feel they're virtuous because they're yelling criticism versus doing the hard work of how do you navigate.
Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that includes me. I'm, I don't recall doing any hard work. No, actually, I'm thinking <laughs> about how to navigate, but I'm, I'm not like uh, I'm not like working on alignment or anything. I don't know how to write code, so I can't do that. Well, it doesn't have to be like you could think about the way. No. Like, for example, you have a number of different, you know, uh, tools in your conceptual chest. Like, for example, uh, your book about like why Buddhism is true is actually one of the things that when I first started getting into this, I distributed all the AI labs that I was connected to saying, if we could train this thing to be functionally Buddhist, we'd be much you know better off if it had Buddhist values. Your God book was one you. of them, <laughs> right? You know, non-zero is the reason we you know met uh, because I you know still think that of one of the you know kind of great kind of grand histories conceptual framework books that people should read. And look, you could take that tool chest and say, if we're looking at how do we navigate AI safety, AI alignment, other kinds of things. Here are some things to consider. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was it was riffing off these kinds of things. I said, well, your current mode of training AIs is intense competition. You know, alpha zero, etc. Are there ways that we can train the AI out of cooperation as well? Right? Mm-hmm. Like there would be kind of cooperative games that would work for it in mm-hmm. fitness functions, and maybe that might end up having a higher safety characteristic for what you're doing. And that kind of thing is the kind of thing is the hard work of actually, in fact, you know, kind of participating, you know, not necessarily writing the code, but to to try to to get to to better outcomes. Because, you know, a little bit of the like, you know, the well, everyone should X, like we should all agree to slow down. It's like, well, we can't even get us all to agree to do something about climate change. And that's pretty obvious and much more close. Like how is how are we going to get everyone to agree to slow down as a function of this? It's like saying the UN should be highly functional, and you know, we should just write a statement to make the UN highly functional. And it's like you know, um, I've written that statement. You're right; it didn't work. <laughs> yes, right. And so, and so the the question is: you think about okay, human beings dividing into groups, competing with each other, have different ideologies, different assessments of risks, a bunch of other stuff. How do you? contribute well within that set that framework and set of arenas to maximize human you know humanist aspirational outcomes right less violence um mm-hmm. you know more mm-hmm. more enablement of human rights more enablement of human potential uh peaceful societies uh prospering those are the kinds of things that we we want to be intervening to say more of this less of that and then each of us as individuals whether or not we're into public intellectuals like you, you know, investors, um, you know, other kinds of, you know, technologists, technology companies, that's the that's the work that we should be collaboratively doing. And so when I encountered this question of, oh shoot, we should this this is going to be biggest technology maybe in human history, how do we navigate it? Well, let's start making sure that we're collaborating on bridges of trust and discussion about how to navigate the risks while maintaining, you know, the 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 speed that will naturally come out of you know competition now if you said could i wave a wand and the laws of physics change and the progress slows down i might wave that wand i worry about the improvements in medical and a bunch of other stuff to help navigate the uncertainties because the speed does bring uncertainty Mm -hmm. Um, but on the other hand that wand is a little bit like if i could wave a wand and end global hunger i'd certainly wave that wand Right. But, yeah. I, you know, uh, you know, it isn't a wand question. You mentioned the U.N. Let me ask you uh, a kind of um, very idealistic question about the potential of A.I. Um, 
you know, there are certain pretty well-known cognitive biases now that lead to, we know that need, lead to conflict. Um, and uh, among them are, for example, you know, genuine belief in conflicting narratives. You're, you're more likely to remember your own grievances uh, than the things you may have done to aggrieve others. And so any conf conflicting group has different uh, conceptions of the history led to the conflict who really started the thing and so on. You know, you see this with boundary disputes uh, and, and, and so on. Do you think AI has any potential to do one of two things? Either come up with something closer to an objective factual basis for uh, about disputes, about the background of disputes, or even conceivably, um, play an adjudicatory function. I mean, that sounds kind of scary and crazy. On the other hand, you know the way it works with, with international adjudicatory boards. They tend to reflect the power dynamics in the world. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. has long kind of had its way in international institutions, um, in certain ins international institutions. Um, and then uh, China's rise, one of the points of conflict actually was tr China's trying to increasingly assert itself in these international forums. And, and what, to my mind, was one of the most uh, effective and impressive international adjudicatory bodies, which was the, the, the uh, World Trade Organization's system, has basically fallen apart now. It's paralyzed because of this conflict. Uh, but it really kind of made history by, for a while, issuing rulings that countries actually more or less abided by to settle trade disputes. That was amazing. Um, yes. But, uh, you know, inevitably, again, humans uh, wind up being humans. Does it sound crazy to think that AI could play a role here? Well, I don't think it's crazy. And for at least the following start, which is kind of the adjudicator side, which is, um, you know, one of the ways that I use AI today for myself is like when I'm thinking about like arguing for something, I'll put it into Pi or ChatGPT or others, and I'll and I'll say, okay, here's my argument. Um, you know, how would you what? How would someone? How what would be the intelligent arguments against this? Right? Well, how would this be critiqued? What are things I might have missed in arguing for this? Is that perspective? It's almost like you could say, give me the case for, gave me the case against. Mm -hmm, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, and if we as humans decided that we wanted that in part of how we're doing it, that kind of kind of perspective taking adjudication could be really good. Now, I think we as humans aren't going to say, well, that thing is more truthful than we are. So I'm going to sublimate myself to it because if we were to do that generally we'd already be showing that we would do that we're created creatures of the polis we're political animals um you know all aristotle and so we tend to say well i don't like what you're saying so i'm going to ascribe that to some political thing like your ai was mistrained or so forth right. so i don't think it necessarily gets to a as it were a superhuman this is objective truth we trust it but I do think it can be a a way of bringing in uh, perspective taking argumentation. And if you take, like, for example, mediators in these things where they say, well, listen to so-and-so's perspective. Well, listen to so-and-so's perspective, you know, like conflict mediation mm -hmm. as a way of doing this. 
I think it can certainly at minimum help with that. Okay. Uh, now there's a question I have about Pi, your your uh, your new pretty new bot uh, that's rel relevant to this. Let me first say on the adjudicatory thing, it's true that people would rather not subordinate themselves to anything other than themselves. On the other hand, we do humans have a history of go of saying, well, okay, I'm willing to live with the idea that there's a court that gets to rule on things. I'd rather be the one who decides whether I committed a crime or whether I'm I'm the guilty party in a lawsuit. On the other hand, if this is the alternative to living in a lawless society, I guess I can live with this kind of support. So people 100%. have subordinated themselves to authorities. It doesn't seem to me to adjudicatory authorities, doesn't seem to me in principle impossible that you could convince them that there would be less political horseplay in international institutions like at the World Trade Organization if I don't mean the current version of AI, but someday. So that doesn't seem to be totally crazy. But let's do, let's do, no, well, go ahead. Yeah. No, let's I think do, I agree with that. Yeah. I think, but the question would be is we'd have to evolve our sense of trust in the, how in the art and how yeah. the artifact is constructed, whether it's manipulable, what are the set of values and kind of go into that. And that's the reason why what I started with for building a trust is to actually have it kind of go, hey, you know, here is some breadth of perspective. I'm not just, you know, kind of trying to argue a particular cause. I'm trying to be, you know, kind of across human perspectives in helping get to a objective, you know, a more broadly true intra-subjective, you know, collective with subjective right. perspective, and I'm trying to help get to that perspective. Right. No, I agree. I mean, trust in AI is, is, a, is a very interesting open question. How yeah. much public trust is there going to be in AI? And of course, it gets to the question of like, should you have transparency in terms of what text it was uh, trained on? Uh, should you, and in terms of which demographic did the uh, reinforcement, you know, the uh, RL, whatever it is, reinforcement learning through human feedback, a lot of a lot of questions. And of course, once you are transparent about uh, the texts, then that will inevitably become a source of kind of political contention um, you know, I want my foreign policy journal in there and so on. Um, but, uh, so on Pi, uh, so it, it's, it, I encourage people to go play with it. it. It's out there. Um, there's, there's an app you can download on your smartphone. You can just go to Pi, uh, you know, is it pi.ai yeah. and, and, uh, and ask it questions. It's very personable. And before I get to this uh, question that's, that's relevant to what we're talking about, Maybe you could talk a little about what it is and, and what you're, uh, where you see it fitting in. I mean, I, I gather it can be your friend, your counselor, and like your administrative assistant or chief of staff or whatever in principle, it, it, which means you think that that's kind of the way these things may play out, that, that people may have a, a single uh, kind of source of, of, you know, a single agent that they rely on for many things? Well, when uh, Mustafa and Karen and I were talking about, you know, what would be really great things to come out of the AI technology, part of the arc of this, and I think Mustafa was probably the principal, uh, like, let, let's, let you know, here's, our, here's our, our North Star, this is the thing we should go for. And then, you know, I think uh, Karen and I agreed um, this is, uh, who's the third? Karen Simonian. Okay. And the notion is to say, look, we're going to have 
lots of different agents, agents for everything. A lot of agents, you know, for, uh, you know, representing organizations or brands to people will have agents that are helping, you know, the inside of organizations will have agents that, you know, play, you know, various kinds of roles. But one of the ones that we thought would be really important is like a personal intelligence, something that just was for you. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of your companion, your help. And it isn't trying to be your best friend because you should have other human beings, your best friend, but it should be very reliable, very kind of focused, knows you, what are the things that are helpful? It still has a point of view. Cause if you say, if one says, for example, well, I'm a Nazi and I think we should get rid of, you know, races X, Y, or Z. It goes, no, no, I don't think that's a good idea. It doesn't go, well, whatever you want, that's what I'm doing. It's actually has a kind of a point of view about being kind and compassionate, but helpful. To so does it, let me ask in a, in a case of that, where it senses mm. that kind of interest, does it do more in the way of constructive engagement than maybe OpenAI's bot might do? In other words, some bots just might say, sorry, I can't talk about that, as opposed to, uh, you know, constructive intervention. Generally speaking, we try on the constructive intervention. We don't kind of force the constructive intervention. Like we don't say, what? You have just articulated racism. We now need to have a racism counseling session. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes, look, I think this is the better way to do this. And then if the person says, well, let me talk to you about that some, then we we'll go, oh, great. We'll, we'll talk to you. Like, we'll gauge a conversation. But it doesn't, like, go on to a soapbox for it. And if the person says, oh, I'm just going to change the subject, we'll say, okay, we'll change the subject. <laughs> right? Um, so I think it's that kind of grace in the thing. So it's not, because part of it is, I think it's very important that people realize that the goal of every pie is not to not to per se change your mind because it's there to be there for you. It's not trying to manipulate you or anything else. It's trying to be very transparent in its conversations with you. Now, that being said, it does have some ethos built into it. Um, so if you know you were kind of thinking, you know, take take something that was in the news in the last couple, last month or two, like I think genocide's a good idea, it would go, well, no, I don't think so. Right. So it's not it's not, you know, kind of value free, but it's generally speaking, trying to facilitate in a dialogue, you know, a belief in cognitive diversity, a belief in, uh, you know, cognitive empathy, um, a belief in, you know, uh, being civil and compassionate and kind in your interactions. And it's trying to kind of like head that direction of what it does and not be the replacement for you as a human being, like like when you say well, you're my best friend, it says, well, no, actually, I'm not an I'm not a human being, mm -hmm. right? You have you have you know friends who are human beings, but I'm happy to talk with you about how to improve your friendships and and you know do that kind of thing. And so that's the that's the that's the the explicit angle of it. And part of what we're trying to do in modeling the creation of Pi is to be explicit about all this. So we're not like it's like look, we deliberately designed it to do this, and we deliberately left open this. And, and so, for example, there's a whole range of, like, there's people who will use Pi who have very different values than I do, right? Um, and there's people who use Pi who have very similar values, and that will all work because it's that ability to help amplify you and help navigate you through life's challenges and opportunities. And that's the thing. And by the way, again, like, there's going to be all kinds of AIs, like co-pilots within companies, mm -hmm. all in Microsoft, those will be run by the company. Pi is for you as an individual. Okay.
the um, so you mentioned cognitive empathy, which is just kind of perspective taking, not to be confused with emotional empathy, which is like feeling their pain. It just means understanding that they're having pain or understanding that they view the world this way, understanding their, their thoughts and feelings, at least, you know, do the best job of that you can. And this points to uh, a case where I see great uh, promise with AI, but I also see great potential downside. <laughs> and 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 here's what I mean. So, you know, I think you know, uh, I've probably told you this at one point or another, that I, that I think, you know, uh, if you could do a single thing to make the world a better place, it would be to uh, make people better at, uh, at cognitive empathy, kind of across the board, less selective about it. We're all, we're all good at, at understanding how certain people feel, uh, you know, maybe especially friends and, and allies, uh, we find it harder often to, to accurately, to really work to understand the perspective of enemies and adversaries. And I think that gets the world into a lot of trouble. Um, and, and it keeps us from playing a lot of uh, non-zero-sum games to win-win outcomes, and it leads to lose-lose outcomes. I mean, I mean, war, you know, it's often thought of as zero-sum, and often it makes sense to treat it that way. But actually, it's often lose-lose. It's, it's often a non-zero-sum game played badly. Um, and my view is that often an impediment to getting to win-win, whether in negotiations, business negotiations, or just like avoiding war, is, you know, the failure to accurately understand the perspective of the person on the other side. And if that, you already think of that person as an enemy or adversary, human nature makes it hard. So now I can easily imagine a bot that, that is very helpful here. You say, you know, I'll tell you, my wife, we're just, at, you know, and you say, well, have you thought about, what do you think she's thinking? Why do you think she reacts this way? And I can, I can see that being, in a certain sense, I can see such a bot being successful because it would probably help people resolve some personal conflicts. But um, at the same time, uh, people really like to hear that they're right, right? I mean, what's most immediately gratifying, I mean, the question, have you thought about how this person you hate looks at things? That just rubs me the wrong way. It rubs people the wrong way to hear that, whereas Whereas if it says, you know, you're right and that person you hate is wrong, that feels good. And as we know, there's a strong incentive uh, for tech companies to optimize for engagement. And in the case of social media, what we've seen is that means making them feel good. Yeah, your tribe is right. We'll show you more stuff that, that seems to uh, vindicate your tribe and depict the other tribe in as negative a light as, as possible. So we've, we've already seen this play out. and. So this is what concerns me. On the one hand, AI certainly has the potential to encourage you uh, to understand the other perspective better. And you can imagine that being a good business model if it helps people get to win-win. But win-win but is kind of a longer-term payoff. And the shorter-term incentive, you know, if you want to make people feel good in the short run, you just go, yeah, you're right, they're wrong. So as somebody who's actually, you know, making a bot that's right in the middle of this question, <laughs> what do you have to say about that? Well, I think, for example, the social media parallel is a very good one. So, you know, I think you see social media sites, Twitter, um, Facebook, that really optimize for that immediate emotional effective, you know, hit the share button, respond is kind of way of doing it. And 
they don't think that they're, they think they're just targeting engagement metrics. Um, but the engagement metrics have that kind of short term, like, like, you know, they show their data that you're sharing an article even before you've clearly read an article because the, the, the title, you know, enrages you, fits a confirmation bias, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of that, that dynamic as a design versus, for example, LinkedIn, um, which is, uh, you know, not made to be, it's made to say, no, we sh this should be a consideration about, you know, what do we, you know, how are we leading better careers? How are we getting better opportunities? How are we doing business well, et cetera. So it doesn't mean you can't have criticism, but it's that kind of dialogue around it versus the, you know, um, uh, yelling invective, for example. Yeah, I should, I should congratulate you on having started what in retrospect is one of the more benign of the social media networks. Yeah. Well, and and I use it as a contrast because I agree with your risk relative to, look, to some degree, the most natural, easy thing to do is to create, um, you know, call it bots that, you know, agents that will go, yeah, you know, whatever you think, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, fit that with confirmation bias and I'm going to make you feel good because I'm going to take your feelings of rage or, or disagreement or anything else, and I'm going to flame them, you know, kind of in that in that group, which you know you see with a bunch of different cable news and other kinds of things in terms of 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 how this this plays, and that is, I think, a legitimate concern. I think it's a concern in the social media um, services. I think it's a concern in and you know, but I do think it's solvable by companies all LinkedIn, um, and I think it's a you know concern for its society now. Once again, you know, kind of just like LinkedIn, you know, with Pi, we're trying to say, look, that's our our ultimate metric is not, am I come out of this interaction feeling justified about hating person X, group Y, or whatever, you know, with my confirmation bias? It's like, do I come out of it feeling healthier? Maybe sometimes a little like, oh, that was interesting. That kind of challenged me because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily just agree with me. Um, but it helps me become more the person I want to be, helps me chart the path that I want to chart and has a longer term engagement um, portion of that. And I think that's the, um, you know, like, you know, what we should prefer as customers, what we should prefer as, you know, uh, media personalities to talk about, um, you know, kind of leaders to say, we want more of those kinds of products and less of these. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, and I think that's the, um, I think that's like, I don't think it's, we're doomed because of, of commercial incentives for maximizing immediate current, you know, feed my ego, feed my rage, um, uh, sensibility, but it is something that, that we have to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you, you had access to GPT-4 before the rest of us by virtue of being on OpenAI's board. And in fact, yep. that's kind of your book impromptu kind of is the incarnation of that in a way. It, it, it's, it's to some extent a dialogue with GPT-4 about, uh, you know, to, uh, to illuminate the, the, the possible futures. As I said, it's largely optimistic, uh, but I, uh, I'm wondering, could you kind of, uh, tell us what was your initial reaction? I mean, you know, I, 
I started fooling around with GPT-4 after I'd already heard, you know, some of the, it was kind of becoming increasingly common knowledge that this was a pretty impressive thing. Had you already, I guess you had heard that too, through your, through your own uh, kind of internal network, right? Well, 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 tell me just what was it, what was it like be, being, having access to the whole, the vibes around this creation where you, were people walking around going, whoa, this is like, <laughs> this is a big leap. And and what was your reaction when you first started playing around with it? Um, I think people were like, "Yep." Uh, now, remember, OpenAI, um, just like any entrepreneurial and creative and technological invention circumstance, has a um, a conviction that they're working really hard because they're going to get to something really amazing. So the fact they got to something amazing wasn't per se a surprise, but it was a Ah, uh, we've really started delivering something amazing. And I think people had a real sense of that. And that's one of the reasons why, like it was, um, you know, I was playing with a live version of OpenAI a year ago, August. Um, and, you know, it only, uh, GBD4 only this, really this came out. This is four. Yeah. This is four, yep. Yeah. And, and you know, um, you know, uh, you know, GBD4 only came out last March. Um, right. As part of doing it. And, you know, to our earlier conversation, one of the things that I had already seen is the vast majority of the dialogue, very little of the dialogue is positive. I mean, you were kind of saying, look, companies naturally market their products, but the dialogue in press and dialogue in, in intellectuals and the dialogue in government is all like, you know, oh my God, AI is coming. Yeah. Um, well, so plus much in this to, case, the CEO of the company itself had had written a blog post a few years ago saying this could be the end of humanity. So that didn't help. But go ahead. Yes, no. And by the way, I I argued with Sam about you know now what Sam speaking of of of, of appreciating cognitive perspectives. What Sam felt is we're building this world changing technology. It should not just be us. We should have a broader base of people included in it. We do have to be careful about this. Um, you know, an international agreement is important to navigate, um, you know, bad human uses of AI, bad constructions of AI to getting to good things. It could be it could be very challenging as well as very good. We should be focused on it. And it shouldn't just be our organization. It shouldn't just be me. And that was among the things that I, you know, kind of uh, honor and respect um, about mm -hmm. Sam and kind of, uh, you know, what he and a bunch of the open AI Folks, you know, Ilya, Greg, Mira, others, you know, all do. And part of the reason I'm a, you know, an open AI um, ally and whatnot. And um, and that's what uh, is the reason why they were going to the, you got to pay attention to this because it's really, it's really serious. Now, my disagreement with what that is doing is it kind of sounds like, okay, you're telling me this AI thing could be really dangerous and yet you're building it. WTF, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like what's going on? It's like, look, I think it's much better to as opposed to saying, hey, we've got this huge panic moment is here's all the amazing things we're doing and here's the things we're navigating around in order to get there. Um, and so, you know, he was one of the people that I was arguing, this is the frame that is useful. And part of the reason I wrote impromptu was to try to take some of what the current issues are as, um, you know, GBD4 came out, um, which was, you know, journalism and education and else and articulate the positive view and then show the human amplification by actually showing the railings of the use of prompt and answer um, with, you know, chat GBD4 um, as a way of doing this. And that was what was 
um, you know, kind of as a way of showing this positive lens. Cause you know, um, you know, I'd be curious if you could list five to 10 voices that are articulating the positive case for this, like who are intellectuals who are arguing it, who are saying it, you know, not does it mean ignoring, cause I wasn't ignoring like the risks either. Yeah. But well, there's you, there's you, yes. there's you, there's you. No, the um, I mean, of course, there is this E ACC movement, the, the accelerationist movement. These are not previously well-known people, but it's a movement uh kind of uh within Silicon Valley. I mean, it's funny. So Peter Thiel's not saying much, but he's a techno-optimist by nature, uh, right? He I haven't heard him say a lot about AI. He he's one of your your fellow, you know, you're part of the so-called PayPal ma mafia, you and him and Elon Musk and several others who have done very well since then uh, were there together. Um, I, I wish you had given me a heads up. I probably <laughs> could have thought of uh, somebody. Well, but, I mean, I but isn't that telling? That honest. it's unusual. It's un yes. this is a very unusual thing when a new yes. product comes out and uh, you can name CEOs of several companies that are into it big time. Uh, and yet some of them, uh, you know, are 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 kind of sounding alarms. I mean, even Sundar Pichai, Google, uh, I think maybe Kevin Scott, the CTO at Microsoft, signed one of those letters. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 uh, I don't think the the uh, CEO of Microsoft signed either. But um, well, and he is singing the praises, right? Uh, yes, but but I was also talking about like. You know, it isn't just the yeah. CEOs of organizations, right? Um, yeah. You know, this because, you know, oh. it's the intellectual voices who are giving yeah. reasoned thought about it. Yeah. The, the, the uh, well, look, Tyler Cowan, you know, the libertarians, yes. right? So that whole wing, yep. uh, the Washington Post happens to have chosen a columnist uh, to write about AI who's pretty upbeat, Josh Terangle or whatever. Yep. You've probably yep. known the name. Yep. Um, Actually, so I know Josh. And, yeah, you know, yes. So they're out there, uh, but uh, no, it's a, it's unusual. And look, I I think that may, maybe that should tell us something that that even the people in the thick of it, although again, well, some of them are more focused on the sci-fi thing than I would be. But at the same time, I I think uh, the the people in the field who are concerned about it also acknowledge the kinds of risks I'd focus on. You know, the, the sheer, even if it turns out that as many jobs are created as are eliminated, that still a, uh, can be a destabilizing transition. And we don't know whether that will be the case this time. This time may be different. There are people who think it will be. Um, you know, we, we there's the whole kind of uh, what, what happens when uh, people become kind of, uh, you know, uh, intimately dependent on bots for counsel and some of them are well either either designed merely to 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 optimize engagement or we're still are designed by bad actors who are trying to start some kind of cult or something i mean there's there's uh i could go and then of course there's the uh help you make bioweapons mm -hmm. and of course they're going to accelerate technological progress itself right and, and so move increase the pace at which things change and again a lot of my concern it's not that uh we can't deal with these things it's kind of that the more time we have to adapt the better so to get back to the whole question of pausing at a minimum i would say my position is 
if somebody says to you, wait, we can't, if there's a, if there's a regulation or something, or even a recommended norm that, that people say, well, that will stifle innovation. I would say that may be a feature, not a bug. That's just not a good argument against this, that it may slow things down a little, because it seems to me that slowing things down a little would probably be unbalanced. Good thing. Well, a question on, I think there's two questions on slowing things down. Um, mm -hmm. One is also, what are the possible upsides? So, for example, the, you know, like there's a line of sight right now that governments could facilitate to having a medical assistant on every smartphone. Um, you know, there's 8 billion plus people in the world. Less than a billion people have access to doctors, um, you know, and substantially less have really good access to doctors. If you had such a medical assistant, it could be really good. It would, it, you know, does require some mm -hmm. government shifting of, kind of liabilities and encouragement in order to make that happen. But that could be a really good thing. And by the way, delaying that, you know, can be measured in infant mortality, in various forms of suffering and so forth. So you'd say, well, the, the speed of that actually, in fact, um, there's an argument for kind of speed to outcomes. There's a part of the acceleration of stuff that I agree with, which is I tend to think that we'll have better tools both for the upside and for risk mitigation in the future. So I tend to be more of a, you know, keep going and 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 do that. And then the very last one is, you know, the thing we already talked about, which is I don't know human beings other than in fact we divide into groups and we compete. And some groups may go, okay, we we should slow down technological development X. Other groups are not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And so so which groups deploy which technology with which value in them, changing the ecosystem in what way? Like if you put it in a really stark case, you know, what happened, what would have happened if the, you know, Nazis had invented the A-bomb before the US? You know, what would what would the world look like in that case? Um, you know, especially if it was substantially before. Um, and um, you know, look, so the which human being groups deploy which technology with which value system on which direction is actually something that really matters. Anyway, so the, all of that, I tend to be much less of a pause person. Now, if you said, hey, we could just change the law of physics and we all have some more time to be considerate on this, generally speaking, on big things like AI, where the speed is disorienting, I can at least have sympathy. Mm -hmm. I still go back to the, I worry about, are we delaying the medical assistant, et cetera? but I have sympathy. Mm -hmm. um, but since I don't think that's the world we live in, I tend to articulate strongly to you, other intellectuals I respect, is to say, look, the, the question is not speed or not speed. The question is navigation. And the, the question is how to plug in in helping the right players navigate, given the game looks like the way the game looks, mm -hmm. which is what um, I do. Yeah. So. Um First of all, let me say, you have blocked off 90 minutes for this, which I appreciate, which means we have a half an hour to go. Now, usually at this point, uh, I bring down the paywall and uh, make the rest available to uh, paid subscribers, non-zero newsletter only. Um, I, I But usually I tell guests in advance that I'm going to do that and get their clearance on that. I didn't tell you. Uh, and totally fine. I, I, whatever, whatever you would, whatever, whatever you would I want. Like. I, I would guess cool. that the the Reed Hoffman is conflicted. That the, the entrepreneur says, "Of course, you bring down the paywall." 
and the and then the the the, the public interest uh reed hoffman uh says uh but maybe this conversation could do some good um I, i'll uh why don't we just leave it open and i'll encourage people uh to um if, if they support these conversations generally go ahead and become uh, uh you know a member a non a, a non zero member or if you weren't even thinking about becoming an unpaid subscriber at least do that is that mm -hmm. asking too much um 100% so let me ask you you know back to Sam Altman I, I actually wrote a piece in the non zero newsletter well perhaps a, a, a bit unkind uh, a, about him i mean just just the the headline and art were a bit unkind we, we uh uh well you can go see it yourself but it's uh, I had a theory because there's a paradox at the heart of the open AI drama, at least superficially. I mean, the way it was originally presented, and I think there was some of this dynamic, was that on the board, there was concern about AI risk and that uh, he might be moving too fast and be too willing to, you know, move fast and break things, as Mark Zuckerberg used to say. Um, now, now we now know, know that there was there was more backstage than that, and you may know uh, even even uh, more than I'm sure you know more than I do. Uh, there was tension between him and a particular board member. She had written something that basically said OpenAI is being a little too careless, and he, according to the reporting, he tried to get her kicked off the board. And according to the reporting, there are some people on the board who think that he misled them about what other people on the board thought about whether to kick her off, whatever. I don't know. There was, there was, uh, it gets a little, it gets a little Byzantine, but, um, anyway, the, the, I still think some of the original narrative must, must make sense. And I, I, I want to hear your, uh, your thoughts on that. But first I want to say there, there is a kind of paradox that it illuminates, which is that he does purport to be very concerned about the risks posed by AI, but he is moving pretty fast at OpenAI. They've got like, you know, right out of the bat, they had two, two different APIs that accelerate innovation in a certain sense and get more different kinds of things out there. Now they've now they've unveiled this kind of do-it-yourself bot, which also, you know, now obviously it's not the same as being open source, uh, which accelerates things even further. That's not their model, that's Meta's model. Um, but still, there does seem to be a paradox. He's concerned about risk, but he's moving very fast. And I went back and looked at some of his writing, and I had the following conjecture. Tell me uh, what you think about it, which is that he thinks there is this view that alignment is this kind of magic bullet, like, like alignment is this binary thing. There's some secret out there about how you do alignment, and if once you do it, uh, problem solved. And I, I saw hints in his earlier writing, I, I mean, even before OpenAI was started, uh, that his belief was, look, it really matters who wins this race. He basically says, if, if a bad guy gets to AGI first or to superintelligence first, that's trouble. If a good guy gets there first, that's good. And, and, and I thought the subtext was like, because then the good guy will make sure that we, we, we use the alignment magic bullet and uh, and everything will be fine. Now, I have a number of issues with this scenario. Again, this is conjectural. He didn't say all this. But first of all, do you think I've kind of got his mindset a little bit right? At least partially. But it also, you have to think of him as a sophisticated thinker, which is, um, I mean, take, for example, you know, kind of the bioterrorism circumstance. If 
the folks who are, who are either intentionally or accidentally um, arming prospective bioterrorists um, get there first, you have a danger. If the people who are thinking about how you do bioterrorism defense and what are the things that you might do to uh, defend against bioterrorism, get there with the larger models first, then you're at least better off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 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 an issue of I, I do, I'm deeply sympathetic with which systems get built first by which players um, who have what intentions and what kinds of deployment will have a very big impact on how the system evolves. That was essentially my gesture at, you know, you go back to World War II and you say, do the, do the Nazis or do the Allies, which build the A-bomb first? And the outcomes are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you want to say about the open AI drama? Um, well, a couple of things. So one, um, look, I think Sam does think that there's a very much of a bunch of very positive things that come. He's not just racing ahead going, oh my God, it's going to be a disaster, but it only will be fine if we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I, um, tell people very often is, there's a bunch of AI people who have Messiah complexes and there's people who don't. And the way that you know that between the two is you say, if you don't create AI, who else should? And if you don't have a list of who those people are, you have a Messiah complex. Let me just interrupt and say, I actually said in that piece I wrote about him, I don't mean he has a Messiah complex in the sense that Elon Musk does. Yes, <laughs> right? Exactly. I, 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 uh, uh, so go ahead. And so, um, and like when you get to the drama, you know, Sam was paying a lot of attention to AI safety criticism. That's part of the reason the board ended up the way it is. Um, the fact of not having solo control. Um, so there was a board that could actually, in fact, fire him, you know, as a way of operating. All of which I think is very strong testimony to his ethical character, his actual actions. You know, because, you know, frequently, of course, people go, well, I'm going to have, you know, dual class control. Like, I'm sure I'm going to be ethical, but I'm going to have absolute control. Sam was devolving control in various ways. And I think Mm -hmm. that's um, all very positive to showing his genuine intents, his genuine concerns. You know, I'd say that on the drama, the mistake that he made was overemphasizing the AI safety and underemphasizing, like, knowledge of good board governance. Because what what played out, and this is all fairly, you know, kind of public on this, is the board said, well, you know, we've lost confidence in Sam, so we're getting rid of him. And the world, including the employees, said, well, look, this is actually really a question of do we have more confidence in you or more confidence in Sam? So you have to say some more about why you lost confidence in Sam so that we know whether or not we should have confidence in you or confidence in Sam. And even, you know, having talked to a number of employees inside, they couldn't get a clear answer. And so their answer to the board, which is a historic thing, I've never seen anything like it, not even at like a 20-person organization, mm-hmm. let alone a 700, 800-person organization, where a huge majority of the employees, like 90%, signed a letter saying, okay, board, fire yourself and rehire Sam because we have confidence in Sam and not you. Otherwise, we're going to go work for Microsoft. And these are all the insiders, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, And so I think that's, Part of like being intelligent and good about board governance is this question around 
knowing how you also maintain trust in your processes and how you operate and what you're doing. And you are a you are a you are a custodian of that trust, not kind of a solo, like what well, I lost trust in so and so, you know, like as a kind of a way of operating. And I think that's a good kind of overall color on it. And I think people undercount that some of this this funky debacle. Now I think Sam made some mistakes and over-rotating towards AI safety and not enough to competence of board governance in where the the board and so yeah that's interesting that you put it that way because that wasn't the board's complaint right that he yeah. was paying too much attention to ai safety if anything yes. the opposite yes well but i think that's because the board was not um understanding in a way that they could persuade other people like the employees that to say we think the speed at which you're going is actually in fact dangerous and by the way there are people who are tasked with uh, you know, red teaming, um, with mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. risk analysis, and everything else in the organization. I talked to them. Those are some of the people I called when I read the news along with the rest of the world and said, okay, what's going on? And they're like, well, we don't know what's going on. We're going to ask some questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so um, the... Um, um, and so, anyway, so that um, um, you know, I think that's part of the thing to that people should reflect as part of the high character that OpenAI as an organization, both Sam and the other folks, are trying to navigate that get revealed in this kind of, you know, frankly, fumble, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, in terms of how the stuff operates, but it showed like some good intent about what kinds of things were playing out. Um, and I think, you know, if anything, now when we think about how do we ultimately rebuild the OpenAI board, it's like, look, let's keep safety and everything else in mind, but let's also make sure that we have high competence at board governance in what we're doing. Yeah. Now, you said you've never seen anything quite like this. Of course, it's not often that you see a structure of governance like this, which is to say, because OpenAI started out as a nonprofit, you had what was the board of a nonprofit uh, overseeing uh, a, you know, a, a, a company that was in the business of making profit. Uh, but the the board's mandate was not to maximize profit or shareholder value if there if there yeah. were you know such a thing and there kind of there kind of is there's there's valuation that the board's mission was not to maximize valuation uh, of the company and so that was one strange thing I think that's also the reason you wound up with a board that wasn't full of like uh, strategic masterminds who were like used to corporate infighting and and said you know if we're going to do this we got to think about A B and C and D down the road because here's the way it's going to play out it seems like there was just a certain naivete uh although again as you say who would have anticipated that somehow a worker uprising would would materialize to what extent it was orchestrated i don't know but but i guess they can't be faulted for not anticipating that but but as for open ai's kind of unusual structure so you were there at creation and this is a question yeah. i always had about open ai was as I understand the original idea, it, it it grew out of concern, I guess, to varying degrees uh, on the part of various players. But uh, I think Elon Musk is, was was certainly concerned about the existential risk 
thing. And and as I understood it at, at, at the time, though, there was the concern that the technology might fall into the hands of the wrong people. The wrong people might get a hold of the most advanced form of it. So OpenAI was going to be at the forefront and yet kind of keep it open, right? I mean, isn't that where the term comes from? I mean, it's all. it was almost going to, I guess it wasn't going to be open source, but there was a pledge of kind of transparency, right? Or, or wasn't that the idea? Well, so um, certain forms of transparency, but actually, in fact, they were paying a lot of attention to risk. So there was never an open source way of doing it. It was other right. people reading open as open source. Now, what they did want was kind of open access that wasn't any one particular company that wasn't, you know, kind of a small number of individuals. They did want open to be uh, leading and participating in various dialogues about what safety meant like and what the the safety testing would be and what the issues would be, having discourse with critics um, and kind of safety and alignment issues. And all of that was a central part of it. Open source was never considered to be part of it, never right. articulated as something they were going to do. Um, but like open as not just owned by, you know, a small number of companies, you know, uh, you know, uh, megacorps um, for this, but but kind of more broadly and making sure it was provisioned with the right safety across all of that. And that was part of the idea. And setting up it as a 501c3, I thought was a uh, excellent idea, one that I was very, uh, continue to be very supportive of. And, um, and it is true that part of the thing is the board's responsibility is not to uh, the investors. The board's responsibility is the beneficial AI for uh, humanity. Uh, now, again, the substance of that, though, is in order to get OpenAI to deliver, you know, its role in the ecosystem to deliver beneficial AI, that's part of the thing of that needs the uh, partnerships and alliances with commercial players in order to get there. Because there's a very intrinsic reason, given this is scale compute, that and scale compute's only really being driven by the commercial sector to be engaged with that commercial sector. And so it's 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 part. It's not the end goal. It's not the fitness function, but it's part of what it takes in order to to realize the mission that OpenAI has. Um, and I think that that was something that we wasn't clear at the beginning, and it's part of the reason why it then first created a commercial fund and then converted into a uh, a company that's a subsidiary that's controlled by the five hundred one c three as a way of doing it. And those are all evolving to, okay, in order to realize our 501c3 mission, what are the things that we need to do? Okay. Now on, on open source itself, which, which this wasn't, um, but uh, I, as I think, you know, have concerns. Um, it's partly because open source just naturally accelerates the pace of development. And as you know, that's a concern of mine, but there, there are other things. I mean, I think it's been recently demonstrated that Llama 2, Meta's, I think that's the one they were, this was demonstrated on, uh, Meta's open source uh, LLM. Um, the guardrails turn out to be very easy to get around if you've got yes. the weights, which you're going to have if it's truly open source. And uh, there are arguments about how truly open source Meta's is, but it's apparently open source enough that you can get around the guardrails. So there's that. Um, and then there's the pace of change. Uh, but so far, it seems to be happening. Now, I've heard people say, this generation, it's not so scary for this generation to be open source. Maybe it's even good to see what happens when something's open source, but it could be that the next generation is so powerful that this is truly worrisome. What's your what's your take on open source? 
Well, yeah, I think you've, it's actually pretty aligned with yours. The challenge with open source is it goes to 100% of everybody. It goes mm -hmm. to the crazy perspective bioterrorist. It goes to the rogue state. It goes to the cyber criminal. It goes to, you know, and so now the current models open sourced are not a, not an unusually substantive jump op over what you get currently use a Google search. Uh -huh. um, but it could easily get there. And it's one of the reasons why my general articulation has been, we collaboratively need as an industry to figure out how to be, to have some selective openness, openness that allows governments and academics and other kinds of people to participate in a network and what we're doing, but not openness that allows somebody who is a crazy end of the world bioterrorist or who is running a Russian or North Korean you know, a uh, cyber war scheme or criminal scheme uh, in order to do this. And we need to, to have that kind of, um, you know, that kind of partial broader openness, but not 100%. And, um, you know, and look, I don't think any of us know how to solve that problem yet. And so by default, given that, you know, the hands of AI in bad actors could be very bad, I tend to go, let's be more constrained. <laughs> right, mm -hmm. as a way of doing it. And people say, well, it's regulatory capture and a limited number of companies. Like, well, there's a large number of companies. There's actually, in fact, governance that also happens from, you know, employees who are paying attention who would love to be whistleblowers and other kinds of things. Um, you know, companies that care about their long-term brand value and what would happen if a government started regulating them. So I think there's a stack of things that kind of go into this. But I you know, I've always been an advocate of open source. I was on the board of Mozilla for 11 years at LinkedIn. We open sourced a lot of different projects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's generally speaking a very good thing. You know, the open discourse within academia is broadly a very good thing, you know, kind of the vast majority. But, <laughs> right, um, you know, when it's, when it has, when it has potential, you know, it's like, should we open source the plans for, you know, nuclear bombs? Well, Probably not. I don't really see the benefit of that um, in terms of doing them. And and by the way, this is a much more positive, as we said earlier, than I think nuclear bombs. I think it can help with curing diseases and pandemics. I think it can help create education for, you know, everyone in the entire world. You know, there's just all these things that could be very, very good on this. But you have to be careful about the, um, you know, the potential bad things, too. Mm -hmm. And that's part of navigating you know, where we're going. And so I'm, I'm a open source cautionary person mm -hmm. uh, on this. And, um, and look, if we figured out how to release open source models that didn't allow uh, redaction of the safety training in just trivially easy ways, then that would be a possible solution. And so the advocates of open source have said, well, maybe if you could solve this problem, then all of a sudden the open source thing becomes the better place to be. But that's, that's kind of the, um, those are some of the challenges ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And certainly, if you wanted to uh, prevent the next generation of models from featuring open source, that would take uh, either actual international regulation. I mean, there's already this company Mistral in France and so on, um, or incredibly strong normative uh, influence at the at the global level, right? Um, yeah, you have to the the folks who can create the larger models. Um, you know, the Mistral model is like, you know, GBD3, 3.5. Um, Llama is like 3, 3.5, um, even Purple Llama. Um, and so, 
um, you know, it's like, you know, those are okay. I'm a little nervous, but I think those are okay. Mm-hmm. But as you get to four, 4.55, you could easily see this being um, much more worrisome. And do you get the sense that the, the generation after four is going to be a big leap? I mean, Sam Altman has said a couple of cryptic things that people speculate about. And uh, are you are you hearing this? That 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 this? I mean, because the alternative view is actually scale will only get you so far. And unless there are new in, innovation, and, and there are inno, there are innovations, there are things happening, and people talking even about an alternative to to reliance on the transformer model per se. But um, are you are you sensing big dramatic leaps in, in over the next uh, six to nine months? Months. Well, I don't think it's the. Uh, I, I think it's unlikely to be six and nine months. Um, but the, but I do think uh, I don't see any reason. Like part of where I kind of had this kind of bird's eye view to kind of see that this new AI revolution was coming is I kind of looked at GPT one, two, three, four, mm-hmm. and between two and three, I said, "Oh, look at all that progress! I bet you that progress is going to continue to four. And it turned out, by the way, ChatGBD plus 3.5 ended up being the kickoff of, for the inspiration for the world. But four is obviously, you know, substantially, you know, better in a bunch of ways. And I still don't see any reason why five is the asymptote. Like at some point, all J curves turn S curves, all scale, you know, gets to some kind of diminishing returns. And mm-hmm. and maybe it'll be at five, maybe it'll be at 5.5, maybe it'll be at six. I think it's certainly not 4.5. I think it's very unlikely it's five. I don't have visibility to 5.5 and 6, each of which is kind of exponentially more expensive to do. By the way, in the general kind of open source and regulation, the fact that these things take very, very large computing centers in order to make means that there's a small number of organizations that can do them, which means that it's easier for governments to collaborate and regulate and and kind mm-hmm. of, um, you know, kind of have a uh, a more s- controlled pattern of deployment or of safety training or other kinds of things in it. So there's features to that as it happens. Um, but they, but I, I don't see yet any reason why five, like, mm-hmm. like 4.5 will be the cap or five mm-hmm. necessarily will be the cap. Although when we get to five, that will be when we're kind of looking at what is 5.5 and six look like, because you're kind of, con- you're comparing the the data points. And I think the, it's not certain. Um, I don't think there's any, uh, you know, I'm not internal to OpenAI anymore, but the, um, but from what I can see, I don't think there's any reason not to believe that five will be as much of a magic improvement over four as four was over three. Right. Okay. Um, and and speaking of uh, governments getting together on things, I'm trying to, there's a phrase I'm trying to popularize. It's organic transparency. And the idea is that like, even if you don't, even if government, intergovernment, international regulation is just too, too huge a challenge to do much with, there is still virtue in having enough economic engagement among nations, including, you know, people from China here and people here in China working and so on, that you just naturally have a have a pretty good idea of what's going on around the world, right? Like we actually, there were people who knew a lot more about what was going on inside the Wuhan laboratory than anybody was uh, talking about. That was a good thing. Now, I think some of those people still aren't talking, but uh, but but I mean, 
scientists, American science had a pretty good idea of what was going on in, Chi in Chinese biotech. And although I think there's actually a chance that this was a genetically engineered thing that did wind up leaking from the Wuhan lab, uh, uh, still, if those kinds of things can happen, you're better off having some degree of insight into what's going on in other countries. This makes sense that, that like, just, well, well, well you are, are you fairly pro-engagement on China? Is yes, another way very. you are very yes. good. Yeah. Look, basically we're always better off with engagement and discourse, right? It's the same kind of thing with cognitive yeah. empathy and all the rest. It isn't to say there won't be real competition. It doesn't say that there is a question about what are the principles of how society is organized or how the world's organized. And there's things that I uh, strongly agree with in the Western perspective over the Chinese perspective, but I learn a bunch from the Chinese perspective and being in dialogue. And there's a bunch of stuff that they've done. That's totally amazing mm -hmm. is a much better place to be. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I will uh, let you go. Let's say, um, remind people you've got this book impromptu and you have kindly made it available. I mean, it, you, they can get it as a physical book if they yes. want to like give it as a present, uh, yes. but it's available as a PDF too. And we'll, I mean, you've made a free PDF available and yep. we'll put the link to that in the show yep. notes. Um, people should check out Pi. Uh, are you, uh, last time I talked to you, you were going to start training a new generation. Is there a new generation of Pi, uh, coming out at some point? I'm not sure what exactly I'm allowed to say, but we are working on a on a, a generation which we mm -hmm. think will be a magical increase in improvement. Well, well okay. Yes. Setting the bar pretty high. Yes. Um, so anyway, people should uh, check it out. Uh, it sounds like it'll only get better. Thanks for taking the time, Reed. Uh, let's, always, let's try to always do this a pleasure. And, and I think, you know, all the non-zero and, and um, uh, public intellectual discourse on this stuff is critically important in these times. So thank you for what you do as well. My, my pleasure. Thank you. And let's talk down the road.